Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. is what I'm going to be doing outside my hotel and all the different cities in Australia. I'm going to fuck with you Aussies for all the ways you've been fucking with me, sending me videos and pictures of all the animals that are going to kill me, try to kill me, eat me, eat my family. Fuck you. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Anyway, hello, Cam. How are you doing today? <laughs> oh, good. Thank you, Ray. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Ray will be in Australia with his family in uh, three or four days. For a couple of fun-filled weeks, which we're looking forward to. Um, the Bullshit Filler, Syrian Civil War, episode 13. Mm, lucky number. Um, as we saw last time, on March 6th, 2011, small peaceful protests, relatively peaceful, broke out in the city of Dirar after 15 boys had been arrested for painting revolutionary slogans on a school wall. They'd sort of mm. been arrested, they disappeared, no one could find them, and so there were protests and uh, by their family and friends of family and some of the leaders of the town. And within weeks, it escalated into riots with security forces gunning people down in the streets Human Rights Watch claimed about 60 people had been killed in Darar and the surrounding towns and villages over the course of the next few weeks. Now, that's a lot of people, it, it, man. 60 yeah, people in a, 60 one people. town yeah. or a couple of towns and, and surrounding villages, you know. And, and I just wanted to add that about this time, graffiti had become so common with, with after this had happened and people started protesting, not just peacefully and marching and things like that, but um, you actually had to show an ID to buy a spray can of paint in the various stores in most of these towns and cities. So um, so there was a lot of unrest. There was a lot of unhappiness. The, like we were covering last time, the people were just shocked that these young boys, probably not hardened criminals or just innocent kids, just spray painting these very... I don't know, benign statements on the wall and they were treated so cruelly. So a, a lot of people were certainly into their feelings and maybe not had, had, had been expressing it violently at first, but certainly with uh, putting graffiti all over the place just to have a way to vent some of their frustration and anger about the way these kids were treated. Mm. Now, the government at first tried to claim that the demonstrators had opened fire first or were foreign infiltrators. Now, of course, we've, we've seen this a lot, uh, not just in Syria, but in all of these um, Arab countries where they had the Arab Spring in 2011, this um, claim that there were foreign infiltrators or it was sectarian violence, etc. Mm -hmm. um, basically, they're claiming terrorism in one form or another. And... This is, of course, an argument that has been built up in the West in the preceding 10 years, since 9-11 in particular, 
you know we have all been become we have all become accustomed to talk of terrorism fear of terrorism and in the middle east they were probably able to engender that um argument or fear of terrorists even more so because that's where at least in the common um imagination is where terrorists come from of course, mm-hmm. Islamic terrorism in the West is by far a very, very small minority of the uh, murders, deaths, even uh, you know, large-scale attacks that have happened in the West over the last, say, two or three decades. Most of most acts of terrorism, violence, murder in the West are by white Christians, not by Islamic. Uh, people, but um, you know, you wouldn't know that from looking at the nightly news, or reading the newspapers, or listening to politicians, or cops, or cops. Um, but you know, we have to also recognise, and and that's been, I guess, one of the main reasons we've done twelve episodes before this, is that in places like Syria, they actually have a long history of foreign infiltration, foreign involvement, uh, 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 occupation, um, direct or indirect. Um, they have a long history of sectarian violence and riots. Uh, so, you know, when they started saying, oh, it was foreign infiltrators, whilst it probably wasn't, as far as we can tell, in the early stages of the Syrian civil war, for the first six months, ten months even, I don't think there there was any involvement by outside forces. It was completely domestically driven, as far as we can tell. But the 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 you know the Assad government was making claims, and and it had a certain amount of credibility because of the long history of those things being true. Of course, what as we'll see, what happened is. It actually became true in the Syrian civil war within the first 12 months. It did devolve into sectarian violence and foreign um, interests did get involved and have remained involved now for the last six years. Many outside powers, yeah. But it probably wasn't true at the beginning, even though that's the way that they tried to sell it. And that was no different than every... Arab dictatorship, as soon as they had any Arab Spring trouble, they started crying foul, oh, this is foreign infiltration. But of course, as we've explained, people in these countries, I think, tend to be more aware than people in our countries of things like the CIA's overthrow of the government of Iran in 1953, the CIA's involvement in a lot of destabilization in the Middle East over the course of the last 60 or 70 years. So they are well aware of the CIA, of MI5, of Mossad, etc., etc. These countries surreptitiously black ops uh, funding... Um, in well, what, what's the what's the word I'm looking for? Funding um, insurrections, yes, uh, domestic troubles, uh, exactly. destabilization, yeah. And so it happens over there, so they know about it. It doesn't get reported over here. So unless you go looking for it in the news, as an American or someone from the West, you're not going to know about it. Yeah, but so, but for them, it's common knowledge because they yeah you know, they live with it all the time. And it's probably. 
Um, God, my fucking brain's not working this morning, man. I can, I've had one cup of coffee and I can't even think. It's probably... Um, fuck. <laughs> What's the word for... <laughs> what? No, no. Five, five, du- five letters, two syllables, sounds like... Um, du- 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 Dupictionary. Yeah. No, wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh when 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 you make something more than what it is when you blow it out of proportion yeah, uh over x, x ex i'm thinking it starts with ex oh, fucking hell <laughs> yeah, anyway <laughs> no, let me put it, let me rephrase anyway. these these um arab dictators probably make more of it than it is in their own countries they use it as an excuse for these things, mm-hmm. but you know there is a long history of it being true in that region, and they all know that. Um, anyway, uh, you know these early protests and and the claims that demonstrators were firing first were often directly contradicted by videos that people were taking on their mobile phone and, and uploading to YouTube or, or being given to satellite television stations such as Al Jazeera. Um, whose correspondents could still get into Dharar at the time. Now, Al Jazeera was banned in Syria, was and is banned in Syria. We'll talk about Al Jazeera more uh, in, in this episode. They, they come out of Qatar or Qatar, or Qatar, have I heard, heard it pronounced, which has been in the news a lot lately. Um, and they're very critical of uh, pretty much all of the Arab governments outside of Qatar, including the Assads in Syria. But, of course, you know, other people in other countries got to see it. Um, But whether or not those videos were real or faked, there was a lot of debate about that. Of course, the Syrian government claimed that all the videos on YouTube were fake. Uh, The the protesters claimed that they were real. And, um, you know, it's hard to imagine that they were all being faked by someone. I mean, maybe some of them were, but hard to imagine they were all fake. And on March 28th, so about three weeks after the uh, first protest broke out in Daraa, the government deployed the army for the first time in the main port of Latakia. A day after two civilians were supposedly killed, well, not, were killed by snipers. Now, we've talked about Latakia before. Um it's on the the coast, the port. I think it was the major um, region where the Alawites had been from. I think mm-hmm. it's where I think the Assads are from. Um, yeah. Just a quick quick follow up question: the two people that were killed by snipers. Do we know supposedly if um, those were government forces? Was it just an act of terrorism? Maybe if somebody was. Killing uh, two Alawites that were going by. Maybe it was just a, uh, some payback. Do we know? Was is there any theories about who the gunman or who the gun gunman might have been? No. I, did they even skip all skip all that? Well, I I didn't see any of that detail in my research. But uh, okay. Bottom line is the government deployed the army for the first time, and um, it, you know this is one of the inflection points where things started to get worse. Mm-hmm. Um, over the next two days, uh, twelve people were killed, two hundred wounded. Um, but the government said that all of the people who died had been members of their security forces or the people attacking their security forces, which they still were claiming were sort of armed insurgents. 
Right. So, so no, no civilians have been hurt. Like what happened after the boys spray painted. This is all people either working directly for the government or people who are traitors by fighting against government forces. Yeah. That's a very convenient fact. Uh, that's probably totally bullshit. Or terrorists trying to overthrow the government. Right, there we go, terrorists. You know. yeah. Now, Latakia is a Sunni-majority city. It's 350 kilometers northwest of Damascus, the capital of Syria. And this is relevant because the government at the time accused Palestinian refugees from a nearby camp of wanting to fuel sectarian strife in Latakia, which is home to about, at the time, home to about half a million Christians, uh, Sunnis, and Alawites. Mm. Uh, so they're, they're introducing this idea of Palestinian, mostly uh, Sunni uh, refugees trying to create sectarian strife. Now, again, hearkening back to earlier episodes, we, we've seen this story play out before in Lebanon in the 70s. Um, you remember the PLO were using the Palestinian refugees in Lebanon to create sort of uh, political unrest, and uh, and the same. The, basically, the Syrian government, the Assad government, is trying to play the same story here. Whether or not it was true, and 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 it may have been true. We know again long history of um, <clears throat> Sunni rebellions in Syria, not happy with the Alawite government and a lot of the power being in the hands of the Alawites in a country that is ostensibly, you know, Sunni majority. Well, if someone's trying to expand the conflict this early on, um, and I've gotten this from you over the years because you've taught me to be, I don't want to use the word paranoid, but critical of what I hear, uh, who, who benefits and who gets hurt by this, um, this conflict, whatever you want to call it, expanding. So I'm assuming that right away Bashar al-Assad is one of those people who does not benefit from it. So obviously it's someone who's got against something against him, something against Alawite rule, something against uh, Syrian government in general. So the idea that it could you know, be expanded, and which brings in a lot more players and it brings a lot more emotions and anger into this, is something you just got to think that Bashar in some sense, would want to downplay, was it foreign terrorists? Yes. Or was it for religious reasons? You think he'd want to stay away from that because then that just lights an entire different uh, powder keg, if you will. Yeah. And and we'll see um, over the course of the next couple of episodes, you know, all of the different players that have an interest. I mean, we've talked about them a lot, but we'll, we'll try and summarize it, I think, in a couple of in this episode or the next, uh, I've got a sort of a list of all of the people that had an interest in what their interests were in in overthrowing the Assad regime. And there's a long list, and they've pretty much all got involved <laughs> in one way or the other. It's a complete clusterfuck. Yeah. How, can, how can you not? I mean, it's it's in a key, key nation, in a key area of the world. I mean, it's everybody's got to have their, their part in this bet to try to control it, try to manipulate it, try to get something out of it, try to hurt an enemy. I mean, every, like you said, I was, I was watching so many different YouTube videos trying to get a sense of what's going on in here. And it's, it's amazing. It's like a Rubik's cube, all the different people that are involved, all the different nations, why they're involved. And sometimes it's nothing more than a proxy war, but this thing's going to get very complicated, very quick, which is why we've said on the show, we just can't imagine it, it ending anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, so on March 30th, a couple of days after the army went into Latakia, 
Assad um, spoke publicly for the first time about the crisis. Three weeks this has been going on, and he speaks publicly for the first time. And and in in the process of doing so, he accepted the resignation of the entire Syrian cabinet. Uh, I have a little bit of his speech on March 30th. So it's a televised address before Parliament, and he says that Syria is going through a test of unity while our enemies are targeting Syria. The enemies of Syria in their conspiracy are promoting Israel's plans. Conspirators have tried to reinforce sectarianism to incite hatred and bring down Syria. Foreign powers are stirring up insurrection in a bid to destroy Syria. And, and, and they're suffering from the adopt the principle of lie until you believe your lie. So he is just saying, look, whatever's going on here, it's not us, it's someone else. It's probably Israel because they're our enemy. And they've been told so many lies about us that we're bad, that they've come to believe those lies. And now they're trying to hurt us. So you are absolutely right. When he does speak way too late for this, he's putting it on everybody. But all the things that he and his father have done over the decades that has just pretty much made this a simmering, boiling pot, just waiting to pour over because people are sick and tired of having their, their freedoms taken away from them. Yeah, and I think at this point, Assad still believes that he can get through this the way he and particularly his father have gotten through these things before, which is to crush right. them. You know, look, mm-hmm. we'll just crush it as we've crushed it before and we'll go back to business as usual. Because his dad had stability for three decades. But if you really look closely at that st- uh, stability for three decades, it's nothing more than oppression, extreme measures, you know, no mercy. So there's a there's a difference between peace and uh, stability. And it, what they had before certainly was not peace. It was this man just keeping his thumb down on everyone. But it worked for 30 years and they didn't have too many, uh, too many uh, flare-ups like they're having now. Yeah, but I mean... <sighs> This seems to be the true. Seems to be true with the entire region. Um, mm-hmm. The the most peace and stability that they have is when they have a strong man um, running a dictatorship who can keep everyone in check, keep yeah. all of the forces balanced. Um, as soon as those strong men are removed, whether it's Saddam in Iraq, whether it's Gaddafi in Libya. Um, mm-hmm. To a lesser extent, Mubarak in Egypt, because the military basically remained in control. They're, they were in control before, they're in control after. Um, they have a strong military presence. Um, but yeah, when, when these strongmen dictators uh, have been removed, it's just collapsed into chaos, you know. Right. <clears throat> the the internal tensions just just explode over uh, when you have that feared strongman taken out of the equation. Um, anyway, so the the the, the forces basically the resignation of the Syrian cabinet. Now, the cabinet was largely symbolic anyway, and, and didn't hold mm. much power. I mean, all of the power is basically in the hands of Assad and his inner circle. But it was a, you know, it was it was his first attempt at trying to um, calm everybody the fuck down. Uh, didn't didn't work at all. Um, he he also said in that speech, "We don't seek battles, but if a battle is imposed upon us today, we welcome it." And by using the word "imposed," it's like again, this is coming from the outside. This is not internal struggle. This is someone else but we will rise to the challenge. So, so very, 
well well phrased uh, his speeches to to project that it is somewhat outside of their borders. Yeah, not taking responsibility for the situation though, trying to pass it off to somebody else. Well, let me ask this: I mean, if one of your if you were one of the parents of the fifteen boys or however the many were that were picked up by security forces, had their fingernails pulled out, were bloodied and beaten for a couple of weeks, and then given back to the parents, and he he fires the uh, cabinet. That's not going to do anything for you because they had nothing to do with it. It's the local commander on the street. It's the, the governor. It's the police uh, chief or whatever, that kind of stuff. So, again, he thinks he's doing something, but he is not addressing the is- issues, and he's doing a pretty lame job about it. So, if he's, you know, obviously he's expecting this to have an effect, but it does not because it is not addressing their key concerns. Yeah, I'd want to see the people who tortured my children arrested and tortured Exactly. Do exactly to them what you did to myself. Yeah, eye for an <laughs> eye, me, bitch. Let me do it. Exactly. <laughs> let me do it. Now, um, one of the uh, forces that he blamed was satellite television channels, mainly Al Jazeera, which, as I said before, owned by the government of Qatar. Now, it's recently been in the news, Qatar, if you've been paying attention, because a couple of weeks ago, a coalition of Arab states led by Saudi Arabia imposed diplomatic sanctions um, against Qatar, supposedly, quote-unquote, for funding terrorism, which, coming from Saudi Arabia... I was going to say, hold up. Saudi Arabia, how how many of the 9-11 terrorists were Saudi? Yeah, all but two, I think. Yeah, yeah. Increasingly, well, there's rich. evidence that the, the 9-11 terrorists were supported or funded or trained or whatever, directly or indirectly, by people very close to the Saudi government. It's ballsy, I'll give them that. Which is why there's, there's this court case going on in the US at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this whole thing against Qatar happened uh, within a few days after Trump left Saudi Arabia. He visited there as his first international trip as president. And, uh, you know, he meets with one of the most autocratic, violent, oppressive governments in the world uh, who had been chastened severely, not severely, chastened in a minor way by the Obama administration um, because of they're, they're, I mean, for a number of things, one of which is the, their conduct of the war in Yemen, which is supported by the US to a degree um, during the Obama administration, but now supported much more uh, by the Trump administration. It looks like Trump basically, when he was in Riyadh uh, meeting with the Saudis, basically said, look, you know, you take take the gloves off, do whatever the fuck you want in the region. Um, I'm I'm all yours. Uh, because well, I've got I've got a casino in Riyadh or a hotel or whatever the fuck he has there. And I hope it to do well. So, yeah, so we don't know what he said in private to these guys, but we do know what he said in public because right there at the podium with the microphone and all the reporters, he says, we are not here to lecture. We are not here to tell other people how to live, what to do, who to be. And he's saying this to a tyrant. So... Yeah, I mean, this guy probably feels like as long as I can do business with this guy, as long as I don't cause any trouble d- trouble for Trump, he'll let me get get away with anything I want because he doesn't care. At least that's the sense that I get. We are not here to lecture. Mr. President, didn't you just bomb Syria? 
Well, yeah. Yeah, we did do that. Yeah. It was yeah. our biggest biggest non-nuclear bomb, and I'm very proud of that fact. It wasn't a lecture, though. I didn't say we're not here right. to bomb. I said we're not here to lecture. We are definitely here to bomb. I want to talk a little bit about Qatar and Al Jazeera and um, what's going on there uh, at a high level, because mm-hmm. it, it, it plays into the Syrian thing. So um, one of the concessions that Saudi Arabia and Egypt and these other Arab states that uh, just started ganging up in Qatar recently, one of the things that they're demanding, apart from stop funding terrorism, which anyone who follows the, the what's going on in this region knows, they're all fucking funding terrorism. Um, no one they're probably more than Saudi Arabia. All the same terrorists. They're all... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They're all... I'm confused. They've got to be confused. Yeah, well, we'll get to it. One of the things that they're demanding is that they close down Al Jazeera. Um, now, why? Well, 21 years ago, 1996, Qatar launched the Al Jazeera satellite news channel, and it was designed, I mean, in a way, in the same way that Fox News was designed by Murdoch, to address a demographic that hadn't been previously addressed over there uh, in the United States, um, the sort of extreme conservative, right-wing, Christian, Republican demographic that wasn't really being um, addressed by the, the, the news market, the television news market. Um, Al Jazeera was designed to bring a new kind of news coverage to the Arab region and basically to criticise every Arab country outside of Qatar because (laughs) Qatar, like um, the rest of the Arab countries, uh, wants to be seen to be playing a very significant role in Arab affairs. They wanted to, to lift their game and one of the ways that they figured they could do that um, was by creating a news network that would criticise every other Arab country. It was kind of a brilliant strategy. Uh, And they started reporting in Arabic on a lot of the the regional controversies that other media companies... You've got to understand that all of the media companies in the Middle East are run Mm -hmm. by Middle Eastern governments... Uh, you know, owned by the the Saudis or whatever. And, of course, they don't criticise their own governments and they don't really criticise other governments. They had sort of this gentlemanly game of, well, you know, let's just pretend everything's hunky-dory over here, Um, where Al Jazeera was prepared to go out and start criticising other Arab states, particularly Saudi Arabia. If I can add to that real quick, uh, in 2010, the... uh the WikiLeaks, the Department of State of the United States, some of their internal communications were leaked, and they were saying that uh, they were claiming that the Qatar government manipula- uh, manipulates Al Jazeera coverage to suit their political interests, which obviously you would uh, expect them to do. If I'm paying for something, it better be nice to me. But even um, some of the pe- the reporters from it, let's see, there was uh, Al Jazeera's long-term, um, long-time Berlin correspondent, Achman Suleiman, who left in uh, late 2012, uh, he said, before the beginning of the Arab Spring, we were a voice for change, a platform for critics and political activists throughout the region. Now Al Jazeera has become a propaganda broadcaster. 
Uh, it takes a clear position on every country from which it reports, not based on uh, uh, principles or priorities, but rather the interests of the foreign ministry of Qatar. So the fact that they launched this thing and, and it's spewing out their message, no one should be shocked by. But again, as you said before, they're not doing something that anybody else hasn't done and still is done today by anybody who has power, who has influence. They want to keep it by getting their own message out. Yeah. And putting their own spin on it. And, you know, as we saw in um, the Castro episodes that we did in the Cold War series late last year, even the New York Times uh, doesn't even have to be owned by the U.S. government. Run the hell out of it. To be exactly. yeah, a pro-U.S. spin machine. Um, and, yeah, and, and definitely during uh, – as when the Arab Spring broke out, Al Jazeera definitely became um, a tactical – asset in Qatar's attempt to raise its prominence in the region. Mm -hmm. So let's go back in the story a little bit, though. So following Ottoman rule, Qatar became a British protectorate uh, and gained its independence in 1971. Mm. Now, you remember, Ray, the Atlantic Charter, self-government for all (laughs) peoples of the world that Winston Churchill signed... With his against his will, hand behind his back, and his fingers crossed when he was sitting with Roosevelt in Newfoundland in 1940, I think it was. On the Prince of Wales, you got that right, buddy. He he had everything crossed that he could cross with his short, stubby self. <laughs> so why did the British not give Qatar? Uh, and if you don't know where Qatar is, people, um, okay, so you've got. You've got Africa. Think of Africa. You've got Egypt up in the top. What is that? Eastern corner of Africa. Uh, Then you've got, you know, it sort of follows, the coastline follows along. You go into sort of Israel and Syria and, you know, up up around there. You've got this big piece of land that juts out just in between the, the, between Africa and between the the mainland Middle East. You've got this big, chunk of land, which is uh, Saudi Arabia mostly, Arabia mm-hmm. back in Alexander the Great's time. Well, Qatar is a, a little independent nation that juts off. Uh, how is that, right? <laughs> right there off the edge on the side. It's that's, very tiny compared to Saudi Arabia. Wow, that's great. You want to do just do that one more time, that sound effect. I, I can't get enough of that. <clears throat> I can't do it right that time. I've already peaked with my peak. I'm sorry. I've already peaked. It's downhill from here. It's sort of this little peninsula um, uh, block, a piece of land that, that juts. It's, it's relatively small, um, juts off of Saudi Arabia. Now. Oh, I, I know the answer to your question. Yeah. Why did the British take so long? Yeah. Oh, so, so obvious. See. Until London was convinced that the people could go on their own way, take care of themselves, not start any trouble for their neighbors, not have a whole bunch of internal conflicts where a lot of innocent people die, it wasn't going to let them go because they are concerned with the people, the common everyday man and woman and child on the street of Qatar, which in America Mm. is actually pronounced guitar. But anyway, so they weren't going to let them go until they were ready to fly on their own. How's it pronounced in America? Guitar. Guitar. Yeah, we don't. We we just hear that, and we just assume you're saying guitar. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
there's a country called guitar. I knew there was a country called turkey, and I'm still trying to get over that. But gosh dang, guitar! Woo! I'm learning mm. something new. Mm. That's how we talk in Nelson County. Mm. Oh yeah, well, uh, leaving all that aside, apart from the obvious humanitarian <laughs> interest that the British Empire has always had, um, <laughs> one of the things that happened is that oil was discovered in Qatar, and Ooh. so uh, it's Everyone probably one it. of the big reasons the British didn't withdraw until they were absolutely forced to at the pointy end of a gun. <clears throat> Must move our last date. Anyway. <laughs> was that, uh, yeah, oil became a big thing in Qatar. And, you know, it was also their their ability to have a good strategic base in the Middle East region. Now, um, Qatar has been uh, ruled by the House of Tani since the early 19th century. It was founded, the state of Qatar was founded in 1825 by Sheikh Jassim bin Mohammed al-Tani. Damn. And uh, it's been ruled by that family ever since, a bit like the, the Saudis. Big news in Saudi Arabia in the last 24 hours, if you saw this, but uh, the crown mm. prince was fired by uh, the Sheikh oh, yeah. and uh, replaced with the Sheikh's own son. So they have a bit of an internal political battle. Hardliner, the Sheikh's, the Sheikh's son, has just been made the new crown prince. So he'll be mm. the new uh, big daddy uh, there. Uh, when the old guy dies, he's like in his 80s, I think, the, um, the Sheikh there. Anyway, uh, the head of state since 2013 in Qatar has been Emir Sheikh Tamim. Bin Hamad Al Thani. Now, the thing about Qatar, you got to understand, is it is a very high-income economy. Uh, in fact, it has the highest per capita income in the world. Damn. Now, Damn. you know, it, it has a relatively small population. The entire population sure. is about two point seven million people. It's about you know why? the size of Brisbane. Uh, why? Because it's, because it's nothing more than a. <laughs> <laughs> Thank but you, good Ray. Good for them. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah. Uh, and its GDP is roughly about three hundred and fifty-three billion dollars, which uh, makes it about forty-ninth in the world. Um. But yeah, its its GDP per capita is one hundred and forty six thousand, give or take. Um, to put that uh, into context, uh, so there, so about one hundred and forty five thousand, one hundred and twenty, one hundred thirty to one hundred forty five thousand, depending on which ranking you use, the IMFs versus right. the World Banks versus the CIS. Where, what do you think the United States's GDP per capita oh, God, is. I have no idea. Um, so half that, about a third of that. Yeah, third. Okay. Fifty to fifty-five to sixty-five, um, depending again on which metric you uh, use. Uh, no, yeah, fifty. Yeah, no, actually, they're all about the same for the United States. Fifty-six to fifty-seven thousand. So you know, yeah. 50. Australia is a bit less. Australia is about 49,000 per capita because uh, we've got a lot less billionaires uh, than you do. Um, I bet I bet they got free health care. 
Well, not free, but universal health care. Probably. And uh, Saudi Arabia uh, is about 55,000. Just in case anyone's interested, uh, if you take the IMF's rankings from 1 to 10, the countries are Qatar, Luxembourg, Macau, Singapore, Brunei, Kuwait, Norway, Ireland, United Arab Emirates, Switzerland, and San Marino. Don't even know where San Marino is. I don't want to come across as racist, which is really hard for me because I'm an American, but sometimes I feel that, that the Middle East is like the current Old West of the 1880s of the United States. I feel like you and I could go there, yeah. go to a certain spot, just say, boom, claim it, this is ours, yeah. bring a couple of tribes or cities under our, and so have our own little kingdom and set up our own. I don't know. It just feels like it's... Get a dozen wives. Of America. <laughs> have a hundred kids. Yeah. San Marino, know, by just, the way, is uh, sort that? of like very north of Italy. But it's its own place. Um, okay, so... So that's going. So they're very, very, very fucking rich is the point. They have the world's third largest natural gas reserves and oil uh, reserves. We should invade them. Although I said that out loud. About to be taken over, I think, in the gas reserves rankings by Australia. But uh, for the moment, I think they're the third largest. And they're going to be okay, even if that happens. They're going to be okay. And you're coming to invade Australia in a few days on behalf of the United States <laughs> I'm government. I'm bringing an army. I'm bringing an army. You are bringing me. an army. Jeez. <laughs> Your family that's coming is probably bigger than our standing army is. <laughs> Wouldn't be hard yes. to take yes. us over while you're here. Feeling pretty good about my chances. Now, it's also Qatar, uh, the most advanced Arab state for human development. They have full suffrage for women. Wow. Um, but flip side is judicial corporal punishment is common there as it is in Saudi Arabia. And they have a Wahhabist interpretation of Sharia law, similar to the Saudis. Um, and according to their constitution, Sharia law is the main source of their legislation. Now, I drilled down into their judicial corporal corporal punishment. I just couldn't help myself. Um, and so I found out a couple of things in case we wanted to take our tour to guitar one day or, or yeah. guitar one day. Uh-huh. So, so let's, first of all, lashings are for Muslims only. Recently, oh, there was a man, a man and a woman who were caught. Uh, he was local. She was Dutch. He was lashed. She was kicked out of the country and sent back home. So lashings are only for the Muslims. I think that's fair. It's their religion. It's their law. That's whatever. Uh, a person has to be physically able to handle the punishment. Uh, and just because you wet your pants, that doesn't count. You have to have like health issues. Flogging, however, is relative is a relatively common sentence there for theft, banditry, adultery, defamation of character, drinking alcohol. A lot of people are whipped for drinking alcohol. You think they would learn, but I guess they love their booze too. Um, defendants can keep their clothes on, which means you get more bruises than you actually get cuts. And the whippers are very experienced who don't go too far, don't hit the wrong area. And so basically you get a bunch of bruises, a bunch of welts. It's a lot of physical pain to help you get back on the proper path, according to Sharia law. So again, I think that means we can pretty much go there for our next trip and we're going to be okay. I wonder how that plays out. So the punishment for adultery is a hundred lashes. Uh, 
So yes. if you th- like now, like in 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 Australia, if 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 you're thinking about committing an act of adultery, you know, mm-hmm. depending on how drunk you are, you, you're going to run through <laughs> the list of potential consequences in your head before you do it. Maybe depending on you know uh, how rational you are at the time. You go, well, <laughs> you know, my wife might find out, or or this woman's yeah. husband might find out, and, and that could cause all sorts of problems. It's in Qatar, you have to but go. But she's hot. Yeah, you have is to go with well, 100 lashes. Yeah, is, she's is, about is, an 80 lash. She's about an 80 lasher. I don't know about 100, but she's definitely an 80 lasher. <laughs> How hot does she need to be for you to go? Oh, 100 lashes. Totally, oh, yeah. I'd totally take 100 but, lashes to hit that. But but here's what I learned. Don't offer her a drink and then sleep with her because you get 40 lashes for the drink, yeah. 100 lashes for sleeping with her. So just mind your P's and Q's when you're cheating. Look, I don't know. You go, take all that. You go, look. I'll take 100 lashes to, to bang you, but 140 to buy you a drink? I'm sorry. You're, 100, you're worth 100. You're not worth 140 lashes. Sorry. Like, to have 140 lashes, you know, I gotta draw the line somewhere. your tits would need to be a little bit bigger than they are or, or whatever. I don't know what the metric more is. Perky. I don't know. Something. I wonder yeah. if you can get a guide for that, like uh, a guide to... Uh, <laughs> What's worth what in terms of lashes? Well, you can pr- you can go this to the so government's wrong. website so and you could print out you could print out mm. the, the the crime of the punishment because that's what I did. I only looked up a couple of them, but I, I think you can do that. Now here's a tip a for travelers for global travelers: yeah. the airways over there is Qatar Airways, which looks very similar to Qantas Airways. Um, God, that's what I'm on. Yeah, if 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 you're thinking of coming to Australia, make sure you don't jump on Qatar <laughs> Airways instead of Qantas Airways. Make sure Qatar there's a U. Qatar, no, there is U no U in, in Qantas. See, that's the confusing oh, the thing. Shit. Qantas is Q A N T A S. Oh, gotcha. Because it okay. doesn't. It's it's actually an acronym for Queensland and Northern Territory Air Services. It's an gotcha. acronym. It's not a word. Qatar is Q-A-T-A-R. So, you know, drunk, so you could far. get the two confused and <laughs> end up getting lashed for being drunk when you got on the wrong you land, plane you in land the first drunk, place. They mm. take you out of the plane. They whip you 40 times, which by then you're probably sobered up. And then they explain that you're in the wrong country. That's very nice. And if you're a homosexual. Oh, my God. It gets even worse. Um, yes. The crime is uh, homosexuality is a crime punishable by death. Uh, in Sharia, but in Qatar, if you're a consenting homosexual male, you just get five years in prison. So again, you have to. What if I'm <laughs> raped by a guy? I don't know, man. But it's got to be at least twenty-five lashes. I, I would think. I don't think. Yeah, you get a lot of benefit for rape in uh, <laughs> Sharia, but no, uh, no, uh, or in Republican country, Republican uh, administration, because then they would just say, "Well, you probably wanted it." You were dressed right. that way. You shouldn't have you been dressed that way on. if you didn't want to that's be right. raped. Yeah. I, I, that's what you I said to you in Vega. If you didn't want to be raped, <laughs> man, you shouldn't have been wearing those hot pants. Um. <laughs> the only, everything else was dirty. Anyway, um, so you mentioned a minute ago, you, you mentioned that according to Qatar's constitution, Sharia law is the main source of their legislation. And I know we've done this before, but I just wanted to just give a little bit of information on Sharia law because I, I thought it was interesting. And the last time we did it was, I don't know how many episodes ago, so people might have forgotten. Uh, Sharia literally means path. It is understood to be the path of salvation. It is the sum total of things that you must do or refrain from doing if you want to go to heaven. It's a set of guiding moral principles derived from the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, inseparable from the practice of Islam. Indeed, it covers every aspect of Muslim life, uh, 
It includes things that the states can enforce, like laws against theft, and it also has things that the states would never try to enforce, how to greet your neighbor, how to, what to eat, that kind of stuff. But again, you have the Sharia to tell you what you should do, how you should greet your neighbor and what to eat, even though the, it would never be made into a law. You are answerable to God for everything. And um, let's see here. And, the, and you only answer to the state for a few of the things, but again... Obviously, you want to be on this path if you want to go to heaven and be able to answer to God to justify yourself once you are up wherever you go when you die or wherever you think you go when you die. Mm. So it's pretty intense, pretty intense. They they pretty much have a, a, a guide for every almost everything you can or cannot do. That's pretty impressive in a sad way. Mm. But it's a guide, I think. It is uh, a guide. Yeah. Well, it's a guide. It's a guide if you want to go to heaven. So it's yeah. a guide, but there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. I mean, I think the implementation of that guide can vary from country to country and government to government. I mean, it, 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 it depends whether or not you get lashes or imprisonment is, sub, is you know, the, the decision mm-hmm. of the local government. They might just go, well, I mean, you can have drunk, gay sex with someone else's husband, um, but we're not going to lash you or put you in prison. You're just not going to go to heaven, right? So, you know, that's on you. I'm heading there. That's on oh, you. I said that out loud. <laughs> right. I got to hit mute. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> And I'm back. Uh, yeah. So anyway, back to uh, yeah, this whole Qatar thing. So the interesting thing is, you know, um, very, very rich country, quite um, strict interpretation of Sharia law. Um, human rights uh, record is fairly mixed as a result of that. As I said, women can vote, but again, there's a, there's a lot of uh, pretty harsh penalties for a lot of these things. That in our countries, we would say, oh, well, to varying degrees, you know, if you want to go fuck somebody up the ass, go do it. Another man, that's okay. But, of course, wasn't that long ago in Western countries where it was illegal. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was illegal in parts of Australia up until about 10 years ago, twenty maybe 20 years ago now. So um, it wasn't enforced, but, uh, you know, it could have been enforced, uh, the legality of it. But, it was, but anyway, but the, but the flip side of that is, and here's something that your current president didn't know. There's a lot he doesn't know, but please continue. (laughs) According to a lot of uh, sources I have read, Mm -hmm. when the Saudis and Egypt and others uh, implement or announce these diplomatic sanctions against Qatar a couple of weeks ago, Trump came out and took credit for it. Yeah, fuck Qatar. They're funding terrorism. (laughs) They can all go fuck themselves. What he didn't know at the time is that U.S. Central Command Headquarters, <laughs> a.k.a. CENTCOM, is right. based in Qatar, has been um, since about 2003. There is ten to 11,000 American military based right. in Qatar. Um, so, yeah. So they're a very, very, very big, close partner of the United yeah. States. They and get apparently, a Christmas card every year. Apparently when Trump said to the Saudis, yeah, go and, you know, fuck shit up fuck and cut her, I don't care. He didn't realize, and this is for reals, he didn't realize right. that the US had 11,000 military people on a base in Qatar and that they're a very, very close partner. Uh, all of the military, all of the American military operations in Afghanistan and the Middle East 
are based out of Qatar at the Al Udaid Air Base. Yeah, they run that shit. Just imagine if tens of thousands are <laughs> had stormed all the different positions where Americans and other I don't know if it's Americans and someone else, but just imagine if there had been a bloodbath because of this dumbass saying things like that. I mean, but again, again, he doesn't read his daily briefings because he's just too fucking smart for that. But I digress. <laughs> Uh, now, if you have 11,000 military personnel in a country, Ray, that's, yes. the country itself only has 2.6, 2.7 million people. Right, that's, that's a pretty big, yeah. I mean, it's pretty much a satellite state of America, quite frankly. Yeah, it's, uh, a, it's a full partner. It's a full-on partnership. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, Saudi's big American partner, big American military base, um, Qatar, big American partner, big American military base. <laughs> and, of course, within days of the Saudis announcing their sanctions against Qatar, Trump coming out and going, yeah, the go, you, I did that. I told them, yeah, I, you take credit for it. Then he also announces, oh, and we've just agreed to sell another $12 billion worth of arms to Qatar, well, on top of the 120 or so that he agreed to sell to the Saudis. Um oh so, I mean, uh, yeah, stop funding terrorism. What, what is that? You want to buy lots of weapons? Sure. Yeah, you can have lots of weapons. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about that. Um, it makes no sense. American foreign policy in this space makes no sense whatsoever. Anyway, uh, according to various sources, Qatar has provided Syrian rebels with financial support of somewhere between one and three billion US dollars. Okay, so Qatar is, sorry, <laughs> Qatar is supporting the Syrian rebels. Think C-U-T-T-E-R, Qatar. Qatar. Okay, so now we're really getting into the quagmire. Why in the hell is Qatar supporting the Syrian rebels? But I'm sure we're going to get into this. Why is the United States supporting the Syrian rebels? Because we don't know any. We don't know anything more than to disrupt shit in the Middle East. We've been doing it. No, seriously. I, I think it's a mindset. I think it's um, going back to, to the programming. We've been doing it since the end of World War II. We, that's the only tool in our, in our toolbox. And so we do it all the time. We don't like you. We will destabilize you. We will support other people who want to hurt you or take over from you. We might not like them either, but we currently don't like you more. We don't have a plan B for anything like that. The, the toolbox is just called fuck shit up that's written on it. It's the fuck <laughs> yeah. shit up toolbox. Yeah. Destabilize this asshole because yeah. he won't play ball with us. <laughs> yeah, I anyway, think you're right. Yeah. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote from uh, something later on that sort of seems to verify that, the Kirkpatrick Doctrine. Um, mm. Now, but the, the relationship with Qatar is kind of interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll get to their involvement in Syria in a minute. But in 2011... Qatar joined uh, NATO operations in Libya and supposedly armed Libyan opposition groups. This is when the US and, and the French and others were trying to get rid of Gaddafi. Um, but the, the rivalry between Qatar and Saudi Arabia is what I want to focus on here. Now, as I pointed out, they're right. both to, to, both of them are strategic US allies. Mm-hmm. And their, players. their rivalry goes way back. They're both incredibly rich because of oil. But back in the 50s and the 60s, the Saudis were quite close with the Muslim Brotherhood. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I think we've we've mentioned the Muslim Brotherhood. We haven't talked about them in detail. I, I, I just want to very briefly sort of talk about them because they're a major player in the region. Uh, they've, you know, they they've been um, instrumental in some of the attempts to uh, destabilize the destabilize the Assad regime in Syria. They actually had government for a very short while in Egypt. Um, and uh, they they were kicked out of Egypt originally in the sort of fifties during the the sort of um, nationalism that was going on in right. Egypt when they uh, got rid of their own king. Now the Muslim Brotherhood itself was founded by Hassan al Banna. Not related, as it turns out, to Eric Banner, the Australian actor who played right. uh, the Hulk in the original Hulk film, and <sighs> Chopper, classic film, yeah. And the bad guy, I think, in a recent Star Trek movie. Not related, and looked Troy. into that. Uh, could be related, but um, probably, yeah, Troy. <laughs> God, that was terrible. Um, yeah, Hassan El Banner, he was an Islamic scholar and school teacher. And in March of 1928, along with six workers from the Suez Canal Company, they created the Muslim Brotherhood as a pan-Islamic religious, political, and social movement. Now, of course, as we know, because we did an episode on this a while back, the the whole Suez Canal thing was very fucked up. The British had basic control of it. They had 10,000 soldiers there, uh, even after they kind of did a deal with Egypt to, <laughs> well, we'll get out, but we're also going to just keep our eye on it. Um, yeah. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood was originally formed largely to try and kick the British out of the Suez Canal. And Al Banner's very, very important figure in, in modern Islam. His writings really were a watershed in Islamic intellectual history by presenting a modern ideology based on Islam. Everything that's happening sort of... Uh, around the Middle East today with this this push for Islam to play a central role in people's governments, you can trace back to Hassan al-Banna and uh, mm. his teachings in the, the late 20s, early 30s. That popular, huh? Wow. Yeah, very, very influential. Now, he, he put forward the idea that Islam was a comprehensive system of life with the Quran as the only acceptable constitution. He wanted to see complete Islamization of the state, economic, social, you name it, legal, jurisprudence, the whole deal. And in large part, as I've mentioned before, about the rise of these um, extreme uh, fundamentalist Islamic movements, his uh, ideology was in large part a criticism of British imperialism, and Western materialism in general. Uh, now, he was assassinated in 1949 by the Egyptian secret police, um, probably on orders, or at least with the tacit support of the British, who was still in control of Egypt at the time. Yeah, I was going to say 1949. They're not making too many moves without the okay of the British because they still had a firm, that sort of strong military presence there. So mm. I think you're absolutely right on that one. But of course, his his ideas, his writings just became even more popular after he had been martyred by the Egyptian right. secret police. Now, the, the, the goal of the Brotherhood is to instill the Quran and the Sunnah 
which we've mentioned before, the Sunnah is the verbally transmitted teachings of Muhammad. Um, the things that he said in his, you know, the hadiths when he would sit around with people and go, you know what I think about this? Uh, I don't think you should do that. It's not actually the Quran. It's just the stuff, the the the, the stuff that he said to them when they were sitting around the waterhole. Um, the Brotherhood's goal is for the Quran and the Sunnah to be the sole reference point for the Muslim family, uh, community, and state, and and every Muslim individual, of course. I start, I started to say, well, well, I had to live my life according to one schmuck sitting down and telling me what to... Oh, wait, Jesus. Never mind. <laughs> keep, keep going. Now, its mottos include, believers are but brothers. Islam is the solution. What is the problem would be my question. But anyway. Yeah, I was going to say thank you. Allah is our objective. The Quran is the constitution. The prophet is our leader. Jihad is our way. Death for the sake of Allah is our wish. I want to go back to the prophet is our leader. That's fine. But if you can't agree on who the prophet is, or not the prophet, but the one who comes after Muhammad, and you're willing to fight it over, and jihad is your way, that's just the recipe for disaster baked into the original, I don't know, it, the whole thing just about fighting over who the, the leader should be after he left was is, is still something I think a lot about. When we covered that a couple of shows ago, I just find that whole whole thing fascinating. Well, the prophet is Muhammad, dude, I think. Right. It, no, yeah. I got that. No, the, things that, the people that came after yeah. uh, Muhammad, the supposed leader. I'm sorry, that's what I meant. Anyway. But the Brotherhood itself claims that it's a peaceful, democratic organization and they condemn violence and violent acts. Ah. Uh. Which isn't the way that it's often portrayed uh, in the Western media. So whether or not they claim that and actually fulfill that claim is another issue. It's up for debate, but that's at least their public position. They don't, they're not claiming violent jihad like, say, ISIS or Al-Qaeda are. The Muslim Brotherhood are for peaceful, democratic organization. According to their official spokesman, they believe in reform, democracy, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press. Here's a quote um, about what they believe. We believe that the political reform is the true and natural gateway for all other kinds of reform. We have announced our acceptance of democracy that acknowledges political pluralism, the peaceful rotation of power, and the fact that the nation is the source of all powers. As we see it, political reform includes the termination of the state of emergency, restoring public freedoms, including the right to establish political parties, whatever their tendencies may be, and the freedom of the press, freedom of criticism and thought, freedom of peaceful demonstrations, freedom of its assembly, etc., it also includes the dismantling of all exceptional courts and the annulment of all exceptional laws, establishing the independence of the judiciary, enabling the judiciary to fully and truly supervise general elections so as to ensure that they authentically express people's will, removing all obstacles that restrict the functioning of civil society organizations, etc. Now, now, not a lot to be, to be upset about in there, Ray. No, I, I would sign up in a second, except for you're forgetting human nature. <laughs> well, you could say that about any political organization, right? And I do. 
And I do. I mean, ever since we've been we've been covering what uh, back, as far back Alexander, everybody when they get into power, they are willing to do almost anything if they can get away with it to maintain power. So this uh, this what was this the rotation of power, whatever that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's all nice, but uh, as of two two thousand fifteen. Uh, the Brotherhood is considered a terrorist organization by the governments of Bahrain, Egypt, Russia, Syria, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. So again, who knows what 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 they truly believe? And maybe there's factions within the Brotherhood that are sincere, and factions that are not. Yeah, or maybe there are other reasons that complicate the issue. Now, knowing what you know about Saudi Arabia's government. Do you think they're going to be amenable to that vision that I just quoted that is espoused by the Muslim <laughs> Brotherhood? Well, I would say yes, except for my answer is no, because you, you use the term freedom of way too many fucking times if I'm a king. I was very uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Hey, but the, and, and same in Egypt. And, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood did win. Like, after Mubarak was removed, there yeah. was a free and fair election in Egypt. The Muslim Brotherhood won and then got removed by the army uh, within, like, a year, I think it was. And, uh, and uh, had their reputation... I'm sorry, and, and at the same time had the reputation destroyed. Because I've, I've never heard nothing... Well, I remember that happening, and I just remember hearing nothing but bad things about them on the news. Mm, because they believe in freedom. Um, and we don't like people who believe in freedom in the Middle East. Uh, Makes me nervous. Yeah. Now, the Saudis, funnily enough, actually funded the Muslim Brotherhood for a long time. As I said, in mm. the, the 50s and the 60s, after the Muslim Brotherhood was kicked out of Egypt, um, the Saudis sort of supported them in a variety of ways, including funding. And they used them as a proxy in conflicts throughout the region against nationalist and left-wing forces that were rising Smart. across the Islamic world at the time. For example, when the Saudis were fighting Nasser's uh, Egypt in proxy wars across the Middle East for control mm -hmm. of the region, the Muslim Brotherhood were given Saudi support to undermine the governments that Nasser was trying to support across the Arab world, socialist and leftist governments. Um, but here's the thing. The House of Saud would never permit the Muslim Brotherhood to establish a branch within Saudi Arabia. Ah, and that's all you need to know. We will support you to fuck everyone else's shit up with your freedom talk. But don't bring that shit here. here. No, that's don't bring right. that shit back here, man. That's at least a thousand lashes right there. <laughs> at least... And you don't, you don't even have to give a guy a blowjob. We'll still give you the thousand lashes. Oh, well, I might as well give him a blowjob then and fuck somebody else's wife. I mean, I'm going to get a drink a bottle of scotch. If I'm going to get the lashes, might as well just do it all. I'm right? to earn them. Yeah. Earn get something lashes. out of them. Yeah, yeah. Because, of course, there is no freedom of any of that shit in Saudi Arabia. So, yeah, the Saudis aren't going to be supporting them. They're not going to put up with the shit. They, well, they're going to support them to fuck other people's shit up, but not yeah. back at home. They're, they're a tool. They're nothing more than a tool to the Saudis. Now, that started to change when the Saudis supported the US in the Gulf War and the Brotherhood condemned them for that. Yeah. So the Saudis then, uh, this is, you know, sort of 
Gulf War Two in particular, the Saudis lashed out at the Brotherhood, accused them of being ungrateful, and started to smear them as being terrorists and funders of terrorists. And again, coming from Saudi Arabia, <clears throat> the people that have been funding the Wahhabi jihadists since fucking day one, the country where uh, uh, Osama bin Laden came from, the country that most of the 9-11 attackers came from, uh, Mm -hmm. it's completely just fucking hypocritical and ironic that the the Saudis would be accusing anyone else of being terrorists. Not to mention the fact that the Saudis have been funding the Muslim Brotherhood for like 60 years at that point. So Saudi Arabia can be pissed all they want, but if the Brotherhood is even half as noble as the quote you just read of course they're going to get pissed at saudi arabia for supporting the united states and invading another country and so they're just calling it like they see it you you know you can't have your cake and eat it too unless you're a king and you're used to having your cake and eating it too yeah and look i don't want to try and position the muslim brotherhood as being no, we don't know right absolutely saints right my take ray is that um Every government and every organization in the U- in the Arab region, like every government in the world, quite frankly, whether it's the United States or England or Australia or Canada, are regularly involved to a variety of degrees with what we might term unsavory elements, um, violence, uh, criminal organizations, if they see that they're going to help them achieve their ends. It's real politic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood is probably as guilty of that as is every other government, every other political party on the planet. I mean, the, the, the nature of organizations is that they end up being run by sociopaths or psychopaths who will do whatever they can to maintain power. That's sort of the... The iron rule of oligarchy, as it's actually mm-hmm. known. It's actually known. Uh, you ever heard of that? Have I mentioned that before? Uh, I don't think so. Um, it does not sound familiar. Yeah, the iron rule of oligarchy was uh, a, f- uh, a, a term that was created by... Robert Michaels, he was a German sociologist in 1911. He wrote a book called Political Parties. And his basic Mm -hmm. message was all complex organizations eventually develop into oligarchies. Mm. Doesn't matter how noble they start off with noble causes and noble beliefs. Eventually, and my theory, and this has been the basis of this book I've been writing for the last few years, theory is that eventually sociopaths or psychopaths um, end up running the organization because they're willing to do whatever it takes to get and maintain power. Then they stack mm-hmm. the decks with people that will support them and do whatever it takes to increase their power. Then it's off to the races, yeah. Mm. Um, so that that may be true of the Brotherhood as well, but um, again, I, I don't think it's, well, I know for a fact it's not unique to them. Anyway, so what happened? So when the Saudis lashed out at the Muslim Brotherhood, Qatar saw an opportunity to align themselves with it. Uh, As the Saudis had done when the Muslim Brotherhood was kicked out of Egypt, now Qatar did when the Saudis turned on them. And Qatar began sponsoring the Muslim Brotherhood's intellectual forums, um, giving it 
substantial monetary support across the region. And, and Qatar is obviously literally borders Saudi Arabia. It's, it's on the same, it's, it's connected uh, to them. Right. So the Saudis then saw Qatar, not only in terms of Al Jazeera, but also their support of the Muslim Brotherhood across the region uh, as a major, major threat to the House of Saud's religious authority within and also their control over the, the broader um, Arab states, which is, as we've explained many times, basically, if you look at the Middle East, it's a, there are proxy wars going on between the Sunni, um, mostly run by, out of Saudi Arabia, and the Shia, mostly run out of Iran. It's, it's a fight for control of the Islamic world and the future of the Islamic world. That's basically, if you want to dumb it down to its most fundamental level, right. that's what's going on. Um, and 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 the Muslim Brotherhood is a threat to that because they have their own vision. And and again, we don't know how large the Brotherhood is. We don't. I I don't have any numbers. But again, the Saudis left uh, let them you know cut them off. Qatar uh, Qatar picked them up, and so there it's just one more thing in their toolbox to go after their enemies with. So it's very smart of them to, to be able to do that. Yeah, and so the thing that's happened in the last five or six years in particular is Qatar has become a pain in the ass to these other Arab countries, A, because of the the way they use Al Jazeera, B, and, and they use Al Jazeera. I mean, it may be propagandist, but a lot of it is telling the truth, too, about uh, some of the shit that's going on. Um, right. It might have a slant, might have an angle, might have an opinion, it might have a perspective, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. Mm-hmm. Just means that they also don't talk about their own shit that they're doing back home, you know. Um, sometimes you can tell the truth, especially when it benefits you. Yeah, exactly, and it has an agenda. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not gonna. I have I haven't done any analysis on how uh, or the veracity of the news that comes out of Al Jazeera currently is, but uh, bottom line is the rest of the Arab kingdoms are unhappy with the way it reports things and and what it reports, and they're unhappy with Qatar's support for the Muslim Brotherhood. And also they're very yeah. fucking rich. So if you can take over that country or you can get, you don't even have to take a country over um, to get what you want. You can just threaten them with, yeah. Or you can right. threaten them with economic destruction because it is a uh, small country. Right. So they give you better terms on, okay, okay, we'll, we'll curb Al Jazeera or we'll shut down Al Jazeera or we'll uh, sell you our oil or we'll we'll stop selling our oil to these guys over here so you can sell your oil to them or we'll increase the price of our oil to these guys so you can be more competitive or whatever it is. You know, there's a number of things that you might want to get. It, you know, it reminds me of the Yalta negotiations, right? It's There are a lot of different gives and takes and pulls and prods that you can right. use, a lot of different levers um, yeah. that are complex and usually hidden below the surface of the two or three lines you'll get in the news uh, complex levels of negotiations about economic um, levers that people, people, different right. countries want to get out of each other. So Qatar has also aligned itself with Iran out of all of this, the Saudis' number one enemy in the region. So there are huge beefs, is my bottom line, between the Saudis and Qatar. Um, both are allies of the US. And the, the, one of the reasons for explaining all of this is Qatar has traditionally been a supporter of the Syrians, but has mm-hmm. turned on the Assad government 
<clears throat> during this whole process of of the Civil War, and you ah. have to wonder why. Now, I don't for a moment think it's because of any humanitarian uh, concerns, because as we've seen, you know, they, they've got their own human rights issues. I think, we'll, as we'll be able to see, it's got more to do with the Saudi involvement. So Syria has in part become a proxy war, Saudi versus Iran proxy war going on in Syria. Obviously, the Iranians are supporting the Assads because the Assads right. are long-term partners of Iran. They're Alawites, which is you know some sort of a breakaway of Shia. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, the Saudis are trying to kick Iran out of the region. Um, and Qatar has traditionally also been aligned with Iran. But uh, I think they see that the the Assads are on their way out. They're not going to win this thing. And they don't want the Saudis to win it. So they've been uh, building their own support of their own rebel base uh, in the region. But anyway, it's complex, man. It's fucking complex trying to unpick who's up who and who hasn't paid. Yeah. War comes in many forms nowadays. You have to look out for it. All right, well, that's the end of this episode. Um, let's move on. Next time, we'll get back to Syria and uh, talk about the, the, the progression of the civil war in Syria. Rather. I was told once that the best way to regenerate body heat is to crawl naked into a sleeping bag with somebody else who's already naked.